0: Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in our final episode of 2023, we hear from MGM's Michael Wright and Chris Britton about their programming strategy as part of Amazon and plans for international rollout in 2024. Scribes Jeff Melvoin, Anna Winger, and Susie Miller on where the US writers' room model goes following this year's strike, and Kristen Animation's Frederick Kirsterud about the Nordic Christmas hour. Amazon closed its $8.5 billion acquisition of MGM in the spring of 2022 and launched streaming service MGM Plus at the beginning of this year in place of the premium cable net Epix, becoming the new home for originals such as Godfather of Harlem and Billy the Kid plus co-productions like A Spy Among Friends and The Winter King. Michael Wright, head of MGM Plus, and Chris Breerton, vice president of Prime Video Studios Strategy at MGM Plus and MGM Alternative TV, spoke with Claire Atkinson at C21's Content London recently about the evolution of their programming strategy, how business is returning to normal after the US writers and actors' strikes, and international rollout plans for 2024.
1: Amazon has a huge constellation of media assets, video assets. We have Amazon Prime Video, we have Freevee, we have MGM+. Chris, what's the difference?
2: (laughs) Glad you asked that. That's a lot of assets. It's a lot of assets. And that's exactly what MGM+, is really about. Michael and I uh, have had a vision for what this platform could be and right now, this time, when, when Amazon Prime Video, as well as a lot of the image competitors, like Netflix and Max and others, are getting bigger. They're really all things to all people. They're general entertainment. They offer you sports and kids and reality programming. We saw the lane to revert to the premium television, un, adult-oriented, under the emotive lion, uh, and that was really where we wanted to go as a complementary platform to Prime, not competitive. It's another arrow in the quiver, if you will. Mm for the benefit of consumers, but Michael,
3: you're the well, steward sorry. of this, and so why don't you give <laughs> us a little more color? Epic's uh, was the the forbearer to uh, MGM Plus. It actually was uh, started in 2009. It was originally a business created by Lionsgate and Paramount and, M- and MGM. And it was really a movieplex service, and about six or seven years ago, we began shifting it to be more of a contemporary premium service. So it's MGM come to its fruition. It's a combination of pay-one movies, new movies that are in their post-theatrical religion. classic and library movies from uh, all the studios all over town, and original series, all of it curated to the MGM brand. So when this group came to start uh, programming epics about seven years ago, the first thing we did was say, well, this is brandless. So let's figure out what is the addressable market and what is the brand? And started working with Chris and the MGM folks, and actually four or five years ago, we retooled the entire thing to be an MGM service, we just didn't change the name. I see. And, then when and it Amazon- was
1: known in America as Epic. Epic, correct. Yeah. But
3: we began recurating the content and crafting original series and doing everything to let that service be the digital expression of MGM. When Amazon bought us, they were fantastic. They said, let's finish the job. Let's go ahead and put that name on it. Mm. So what you have now is a service that, as Chris said, it works sort of the same way the old premiums did. It is targeted to an adult audience. And it's built of new movies, library movies, and original series, all of them designed to play to that MGM audience, which is very specific. We've done a lot of brand research, so I can talk about that later. Yeah, we're
1: going to come to that.
3: about who the audience is, but yeah, and that's what it is.
1: Chris, can you talk a little bit about Amazon's influence? What did they see there and say, you know, change this or change that, or how did they change the budget? Um, yeah. what, what was their kind of input and influence over it? I mean, the, it, it mainly has concept?
2: been a recognition of what this could be as a complementary channel, as I said before. I mean, Amazon Prime Video is vast, but what Amazon Prime Video is looking to do for the consumer globally is provide a hub, a place to go where you can experience not only the Prime Video and freebie content, but also other channels and TVOD movies and rentals and really be a destination for all your entertainment needs. And having a channel that we own under a brand that actually, what we find when we tease the brand study a little bit, what you found is that the brand means something to people. It's emotive, people think it's cinematic. And so what we tried to do is basically when we were merged with Amazon, we said, listen, we should really use this brand and we should basically provide consumers in this vast landscape of, of content with a home, a place they can go where they understand what they're gonna see. Mm. And they, they are, have an expectation of that. And what we did is we, we just relaunched this in January of this year, it's only 10 months old, in the United States. And there was always a plan eventually to to move internationally, but what we saw was the proof of concept and the success that we had literally in the first month in the the United States where the awareness popped, subscribers leaped, it was, we accelerated our our plans and one of the things we were able to do is do some global partnerships to start to manifest the MGM Plus channel as it will eventually be globally in certain markets around the world. So we've, we've kind of accelerated those international growth plans under the MGM banner. And so it's a little bit of a a lumpy service now and it's different in different markets. And it will always be that from a value proposition. We don't believe in a global one size fits all programming service. We believe that each territory has individual tastes and needs that need to be catered to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll do that. But it was really interesting. And I want to remind everybody, this is less than a year old. And the results have been extraordinary. We've accelerated the international expansion because of that.
1: Mm. Michael, this must be very exciting for you to develop this new service and also have a budget for some originals and kind of decide what this flavor is going to be. Uh, Can you tell us about some of the shows that you've commissioned?
3: Yeah, I can. And I'll just echo what you just said. It's very exciting because we are a very curated brand. You know, We're not trying to be all things to all people. You really can be one or the other today. You can either be a big, broad service or you have to be... Curated and have a truly addressable market, which is what we've leaned into. It's a slightly adult, sophisticated audience that, as we say, it's television for movie lovers, which echoes the MGM brand. Um, we, we were very fortunate because we had some early success with our, our very first show was uh, Godfather of Harlem. That, which, uh, is which is from Chris, Chris Brancato, Bronco, who is going to be up here speaking in a bit. And He's it was a hit such machine,
1: a, that guy. Uh, yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but it was such a great expression of the as-yet-unnamed brand. We knew we were going to be MGM back then, but we hadn't mm. named it yet. But Godfather of Harlem is a cinematic, star-driven with Forrest Whitaker, super entertaining show that is also about something. Mm. And it was... When you have your first show come out of the gate and speak so clearly and decisively to what you're trying to be It's an incredible help. And so we have followed that up with shows that we think do much the same from Actually became our new number one show. It actually surpassed Godfather of Harlem this year uh, Which is a horror thriller from the entire team that made Lost Mm. Jack Bender and John Griffin and Jeff Pinkner Harold Perrin who's brilliant star of that Yeah, What's
1: what's it about? Tell us about the content.
3: The simple premise of from is you are driving someplace on the highway you pull off to get lunch or do whatever you end up on this one road that diverts you to this little town in the middle of a forest clearing and you're like great how'd I get here and every time you try to leave the road leads you back and you realize once you are in this town you can never leave it.
1: Mm, sounds like a television business. It
3: does <laughs> exactly it sounds like a television career and then also as it happens at night when the sun goes down horrible things come out of the woods they look human they move very slowly but if they get to you they thrash you so the show is really though it's a horror thriller but it's also about this community of people that have been brought together from all over the place having to coexist and it has that wonderful narrative engine that good series have which is A mystery that has to be solved. Why are we here and how do we get out of here? Mm -hmm. So From has been a big success for us. The third show I would mention that also lives in that MGM space is Billy the Kid from the incredible Michael Hurst. And you'll see a pattern here, whether it's Chris Brancato or Michael Hurst or Jack Bender and John Griffin. These are all the results of really incredibly talented people that get the MGM brand. Billy the Kid is the classic Billy the Kid's story, but Michael Hurst's version of it is a way to tell the American immigrant story, because Billy was the child of Irish immigrants, and it's all about how he became an outlaw Mm -hmm. and why he really was an outlaw, and it has all the vitamins and minerals of a great Western, Mm -hmm. but it's also about something. And then coming up, we have Belgravia, season two, from Julian Fellows and Gareth Neame. It's a beautiful, sumptuous, primetime soap. And I say that in front of Julian. Julian would say it's soap. But it's really thoughtful, smart soap set in the 1850s. That's with a
1: soap, right? <laughs> By the way, it yes. The soap. Sure.
3: By the way, the whole cast will say that. It's like yeah. the best <laughs> kind of soap, really thoughtful, well-made soap. Uh, we have a new series, or limited series, uh, also, st- uh, I don't think I can say who's starring on this stage, but with a really marvelous star uh, called the Emperor of Ocean Park from Warner Brothers Television and Sherman Payne and John Wells. It's a contemporary legal thriller, really beautiful, smart story set in Washington, D.C. Uh, from season three will be coming this year. And then Hotel Cocaine, which we're going to talk about in a right, bit. Right, Also from the mind of Chris Brancato. Also very MGM, very cinematic, yeah. very smart, wildly entertaining.
1: Yeah, um, how many originals are you intending to commission per year, um, and what's your cycle right now? Are you looking at 25, or are you full up for 24? Yeah, no,
3: 24 is set. We haven't announced all of it yet, but 24 is set, and we're already in the in the process of setting 25. It's seven or eight scripted series a year, and then three or four unscripted series. We've built a really nice business in unscripted narrative, nonfiction, uh, a lot of music docs, true mm-hmm. crime, and some genres, sports and horror, especially, that have done very well for
1: us. Are you a 70s music fan? I noticed the sometimes. from <laughs> <laughs> one is also about well, the 70s. <laughs> I'm a music fan. He's the a, a lead
3: singer in, a, in the band. I, he outed you
2: know, me. Like, yes. he, has his own, he wants to do a documentary about himself. <laughs> <laughs> Someday.
3: <laughs> but we're also doing a doc. Uh, we have, I can't announce we, it. We have another music doc that is set okay. in the night. 90s. <laughs> and we did Punk, which is one of my one of our earlier music docs. That If you haven't seen it, it's just brilliant. It's, I think, the definitive doc series about the punk movement. So, again, all of that is based on filmmakers. Alison Elwood, Alex Gibney, an Academy Award-winning mm. filmmaker, has been doing great work for us. Leslie Chilcott. Uh, we've been very... Fortunate to get the the best filmmakers and showrunners to come help us craft all this.
1: Yeah. Chris, tell us about distribution. It's not just a streamer, it is linear also, um, and it's rolling out around the world. Can you talk about where you're distributed, what platforms, and to give the audience a sense of uh, how big it is already. Sure.
2: In the United States, uh, we have basically linear distribution across the MVPD footprint. So just like any other uh, pay television service, but really the the future of where we're leaning towards is on the digital side. So it's it's, it's Amazon Prime Video Marketplace, Apple, Roku, Google, etc., and we have a direct to consumer manifestation. And that that's really been when we relaunched in January. That's what we when we saw really a strong uptick. The MVPDs. The classic cable carriers loved it because it gave them a service that really is, is the price of a latte. It's the price of, a, of, a, of one movie rental a month. Mm-hmm. You can have this beautiful service curated with original series and, and wonderful movies. And that was a great value proposition for their consumers. But then in the digital world as well, with, with the power of Amazon pushing through the marketplace as well as Apple and Roku, mm-hmm. really saw a strong uptick in response to the brand. And that's what I was saying. It was that success that Lynn led us to accelerate internationally. And, and we have, our good friends at, at Lionsgate were, were leaving certain markets uh, in the EU. And they, they would basically talk to them about, we wanted to make sure that we could combine what, the best of what we had to offer with what their content was. Because we didn't want the consumers in those markets to be left behind. So we were able to, across all of the EU, essentially combine Uh, the two services and really jumpstart and accelerate the advancement of MGM Plus over here. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is in the Prime Video marketplace, which is where we have the best data, it's become a top three channel in all of the EU. So everywhere it's offered, it's either one, two, or three in the Prime Video marketplace, which is a great proof of concept Mm. to continue that model elsewhere. Um, so you so, just
1: add it. If you, if I'm on the Amazon website and I go to the store, I can just click a box and it, it's right it's there. It's right there. It's yeah, super it's easy. easy.
2: And and that really is the the sort of focus of Amazon from the marketplace perspective is to provide that easy service. You go into the Amazon portal and there is all, not only MGM Plus, it's a lot of uh, right. channels, yeah. but very easy to purchase and really assemble your own curated package of content mm-hmm. that you love.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so that is a huge focus, but we're also available on local distributors, Apple, Google, as I said, Roku, all over. Um, we're, in, we're in 17 major markets right now. Mm. The product is different in the United States versus the EU versus other markets. So what we've What's done- What's different
1: about it? So is it, it simply a matter of rights that you- need yeah, to yeah, and we manage. also
2: believe that. One of the things that, that we've seen others do is take an approach where you buy content for the world. Mm -hmm. And you buy a series, you commission a series, you produce a series, and you put it off globally. But that assumes that the global market tastes are consistent. It's not something that we believe in. So we believe that each market, each territory, should be programmed on a bespoke basis to tailor to the needs, desires, wants of that market. Mm -hmm. And so that's more time-consuming, but I think it's a more responsible way to grow and so that when you enter a market, you sustain in that market, you're there, you're a reliable content source for the long term in that market. So we're going a little slower than a global rollout, but what you're gonna see over the next 12 to 18 months is us take on more and more territories with the MGM product as the base, product from third party partners, and then what we're gonna start to do is take some of the US series and movies and start to populate them on a territorial basis where we think that piece, that show, that movie will play best Mm. for that market. So that's what you're gonna
1: see us do. I see. Are you in the room on movie green lighting in any way? Can you, do you give them input about what you think's gonna work for MGM Plus?
2: Well, we have, I, I wear multiple different hats. Right, houses. right. So, uh, at, at Amazon. I hope you get
1: multiple paychecks
2: <laughs> Singular paycheck. But uh, the, so in that regard, we have in the United States a, a, a pay one deal with, with MGM movies. And the, the proposition there that's really fun for our fans is that we have what we call the sneak peek window. So we get it first, early, I it's gonna be basically pushed, pressed up against the classic transactional window. Yeah. So the consumers are gonna get a chance to watch their favorite movies from MGM early and that's a benefit of having the
1: service. Yeah.
2: And then in the international market, as I said right now, the MGM movies are primarily exploited through Prime Video, but that's gonna evolve over time as, the, as the markets evolve.
1: This might be a dumb question, but to me, MGM is known as the the place where uh, that created Bond, that distributed Bond, and was associated with 007 for uh, all of its life. Um, is there any idea that that might come to MGM Plus in any way, or there might be shows that that come eventually, or movies that that well,
3: might? We already have the Bond movies. You've got the Bond movies. We do. And we rotate them. We share them uh, with Amazon as well. But yeah, we already have the Bond movies, the Rocky movies, all the classic MGM IP. And people don't know this, so nice opportunity to share it. We're, we already have it. We have a Best of MGM Row. We have Rocky. We have Bond. So the, the the whole service has been crafted over the past year to be the extension of MGM, including all those classic movies. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as original series, that's really a function of sometimes the filmmakers themselves, the owners, and Amazon. So... As the programmer of the service, oh yeah, you kill to have that. But and there will be uh, MGM IP and you're that is adapted. On some, no, I we can't talk say about it, but Ooh. he's got some. Uh, yeah, he's got some sounds like he's some news. <laughs> I can't say it on this stage, but there are a couple really wonderful pieces of MGM uh, IP that we're adapting right now that will be part of the service.
1: Yeah, and we, we see it actually at Amazon in the UK. I think there's a show 007. So
2: the, the the Road to a Million is actually a good example. The the Road to a Million is a. It was commissioned before the acquisition and it's a fantastic manifestation of bond Mm. in in, in the real world. But when you look at the programming that, that Michael puts on MGM Plus is you, you don't see a lot of competition type reality programming. Mm-hmm. So even though that's an MGM IP show, that doesn't necessarily mean it fits with right. the ethos that right. Michael's curating. Yeah. So
3: I think when you see the shows that we will announce over the next year, it'll make sense. It's, it's very consistent with what we've been doing in terms of that cinematic style and the narrative approach, much more in line with that sort of classic perception of MGM. Yeah. That's a terrific show, but a, yeah. a competition game show would probably not be as good not as fit. Not for you. On yeah, a I can see series. that. Yeah. Um,
1: so let's talk about the economy. It's been a little bit of a rough year for everybody, yeah. but the bright light, I guess, is that the strike is over and yes. people can get back to work. Um, can you talk about like that rush for resources? You're in Hollywood. Is everybody booking the sound stages? Like what's, yes. what's it like? Paint that picture for I, us.
3: I think it's been a bit, it's, I would describe it as controlled chaos because it's not anybody's first rodeo and everybody saw the work stoppage coming, I think it Mm. lasted a bit longer Mm. than everybody hoped and believed it would. So I think there were really great plans that were in place that uh, anticipated the strike. We had writer's rooms that were going so we had scripts written and production plans, everything ready to go so that when the strike ended, we could commence. We did have to stop a a few shows in mid-production. We knew that was going to happen. Mm. Uh, We had to delay premieres of a few shows so as I said in an interview recently, that was an elbow to the ribs, Mm. but you you adapt and move on and so the good news now is everything is going back into production we yeah. did get ahead of it so we had our stages and we had our crews and we had our scripts so as much as you can weather something like this we weathered it yeah. and i we will get back to our regularly scheduled programming in
2: january
1: right right
2: and one of the benefits too um of having a a more modestly sized slate you know mm. the, the eight series we're really focused
3: mm-hmm.
2: so Every show matters a lot. Mm. And so from a standpoint of the curation, the talent is brought in, the timing, the production, the, the focus is there. So we've been waiting, you know, it's it's, it's our Christmas morning when we were able to, to really get people back to work. And so we were we were there Johnny on the spot planned. And yeah. um yeah. because it's it's we're very focused because of the, the number of shows we have.
1: Right, right. And and how has kind of that cost cutting affected You, I mean, I know everybody needs to make every dollar work, show every dollar on screen. Um, How did it change how you were working this year? I mean, obviously, the cost of debt went up, inflation, the cost of shows. Um, Can you talk about that in any way?
2: I'm not sure it affected... Us as much because we've the, the our business plan has always been to run on a self sufficient, cash flow positive, profitable basis. Got it. So that has been the mandate, the vision of MGM Plus from the beginning and epics prior to that. So as we, that's why as we roll out internationally, we feel very confident in our ability to enter a market and sustain there because we have a profitable business model that is self sustaining.
3: I mean, it's part of the ethos, honestly, of MGM Plus. We've always had to do a little bit more with a little bit less. And I think it's actually to our benefit because in any sort of challenged environment, if you already have that as part of your DNA, it doesn't really rock your world. You know, we've kind of always looked at it as, okay, how can we make the best possible programming, uh, make it or buy it, and do it in the most efficient manner. So that's mm. sort of baked into our business plan mm-hmm. already. Do you
1: see the budgets going up as you grow and, and revenue increases and profit increases? Do, how, does, how does it well, work shows at Amazon? Go up. How do they think about? Successful
3: shows go up anyway because you pay an increase year over year. If anything, I think if we, if in a as Chris said, responsible growth is sort of also part of our ethos. We, we like to make the money and then spend it. I think you probably see us adding shows as mm. opposed to making more expensive shows. There, there always shows that in order to make them right, you gotta spend a bit more. But I think we've built a business around knowing what can be made mm-hmm. at a certain number and made to be premium. And and we're we're embracing that. We're not getting yeah. away from from that approach. And,
2: and we've also always taken the approach and the way we put together some of the productions we'll actually produce and own all the rights for and select what to do and and monetize, others will go in with partners. So I think that's one of the things that we've been doing for a while now is a lot of our competitors have really gone to global sort of acquisitions, global buyouts, global ownership. We're very, very flexible and in fact, a lot of our programming lineup has been produced here and we've worked yeah. with a lot of great UK and, and international gravious
3: by among friends. A lot of our biggest hits, um, uh, War of the Worlds, these were shows that we sourced out of Europe. In fact, some of them were bought here, some were bought at Mipcom. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, a central part of our business.
1: Are you looking for any co-production partners right now or any partners, distribution partners? What what kind of conversations are you having internationally at the moment?
3: I think anybody that that can help service the MGM brand Mm. and whether they bring finances to the table or not is sort of secondary. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I mean, like a lot of people, we have leaned more into owning our own content because that does give us distribution and programming flexibility. But you know, we buy from everybody. We, we have licensed shows, homegrown shows, co-productions, acquisitions, all of it. Mm-hmm. We're nimble.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got it.
2: And I think the one thing that's fun about as the service evolves internationally faster than we expected is we can look to do co-productions where we're not only acquiring U.S. rights, but some territorial rights as well, again, that mm-hmm. manifest, that we think is really appropriate for the territory, for the brand. So we're going to start to evolve that. That, that's where we'll spend more of our money, is, again, either more shows or more territories as mm. opposed to more expensive.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and if I'm a program maker and I want to come to Amazon, um, how would you describe what you're doing differently from from uh, what your colleagues are doing at Freevee or um, at Prime Video?
2: I think at the end of the day, it's really about the brand that Michael described and that cinematic adult, not that Prime Video is not doing that because they are, mm. but that's our singular focus, and and I think that really it's you know we operate, the MGM Plus operates completely independently from Prime, best friends, but mm. but independently nonetheless with the creative decisions and the green lights, and so
3: um, really it's about appealing to this man. <laughs> well, I, I think that. I said this earlier, so I don't want to be repetitive, but we really do lean into that MGM brand. As Chris said, Amazon's amazing, but Amazon has a much broader remit than we do, and they're playing to a much broader audience. Mm. Of necessity, we've chosen a very specific audience. I've, I've believed forever in the addressable market approach. I mean, identify an audience that is not monolithic, but specific. Mm. So I can tell you, our audience is over 40. It's a little more male than female. They love movies. They tend to watch series that feel like movies. It's mm. we just did a brand study. Uh, one of the best brand uh, companies in America, Miner and Associates, and those are always fascinating because you really you, know, you, you you ask for the truth, so you might get a report back you don't like. Yeah, but this so this was the third brand study we had done, the first since we rebranded as MGM Plus, and it was like your dream. It was an A plus because they came back and said, first of all, the MGM brand is huge. Mm-hmm. It means a lot. It, 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 the brand equity, the brand trust to consumers, mm-hmm. I mean, you could spend a ton of money in five years and not have the brand equity you have in MGM. So that was a huge boon to us. But it also means something very specific to consumers because in entertainment brands, uh, what I was taught and believe is that it's, it's about promising experience as opposed to a retail brand or a product brand. People with, a, with an entertainment brand come to expect an experience. And the MGM brand promises really satisfying commercial fare that's also very smart, cinematic, high production values, typically star driven. So when people see MGM Plus and you study it and do a brand study, what comes back is, wow, this is a powerful brand. And guess what your content is mirroring that. That was the big win for us, that our original series and the movies that we are choosing, the audience felt like that is a, that's a really great expression of the MGM brand. Yeah. So we're delivering on that already. Do,
1: do you think Jeff Bezos saw that in the marketplace when he made the $8 billion bid for MGM? I, I think I, he clearly saw <laughs> that he needed a piece of Hollywood and that that could be a piece of the jigsaw puzzle for global domination in this business.
2: I, I think that the rationale for Amazon's acquisition of MGM I think is pretty clear, which is we had one of the Hollywood's largest film and television libraries, which is cannot be replicated many of oh, oh, in over 100 years, right? Yeah. There's a, been a lot of content produced recently, but this is a breadth of content over 100 years that spans different filmmakers, different ideas, different generations that I think is super unique. That also spawns a tremendous treasure trove of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So the ability to basically, as Michael likes to say, create familiar surprises, a remake, a sequel, a spinoff, an inspired by, there is just a treasure trove of that intellectual property there for the taking to to basically bring to a new audience. And then the know-how of the company, we had a thousand brilliant people working every day in a scrappy environment, in a small boat, in a big sea, and that know-how that we brought to the table was something that even though Amazon had a studios business, you know, we had done it differently and we had had to perpetuate that MGM brand, and so the know-how. So I think it was really those three things, but it was all cloaked under the brand, right? It was, the the people who worked at MGM pre-acquisition and even today, worked there for a reason. There was pride in that line, pride in that brand, and and I think he saw that.
1: Yeah, so I mean obviously the competitive landscape in the U.S. is incredibly uh, thick with competitors. We have Warner and HBO, we've got uh, Universal and Peacock. and Netflix and everybody else, Paramount. Um, what is the competitive advantage that you get from being part of the Amazon constellation? What does that bring to you that maybe the other guys don't have?
2: One thing that we've just done in the United States that we're going to replicate uh, later this year most likely in Europe which is Amazon has Fire TV which is their connected TV product um, and we did a big promotion starting just recently with, with Black Friday of everyone who buys a Fire TV in the United States, and they sell a lot of units, I'm not allowed to tell you how many, but they sell a lot, yeah. um, gets an MGM Plus subscription on us for six months and then they roll to pay. <laughs> that promotion and that exposure, because when you set up your TV, you click mm-hmm. a button, MGM Plus is there for you in a way that's super unique. And that, that support, that distribution support and marketing support to the hundreds of millions of customers of Amazon and exposing them to the great product that Michael's curating is really a huge benefit. And so we've done that with Fire in the United States. And as I said, a lot of Fire TV owners here in Europe and we'll look to replicate that here, most likely later this year.
3: I'll add one thing to that as well, because this also came back from the brand study. I think I've used the phrase before, we're the, the best service that a lot of people have never heard of, which is actually an advantage. Because when you have a really great product that you can introduce to people, what we have found through the brand study is, a much higher percentage than is normal saw it and loved it and said, "Wow, it's priced. We're, we're priced less than everybody else." And there's a lot more content on it than people expect. I think a lot of people hear MGM Plus and initially think this is a classic movie service, and when they see that it's new movies, evergreen movies, and original series at that price, mm-hmm. it becomes a huge value proposition. Which was how much
1: good. is it in the UK? It's, it's, it's five ninety nine dollars, right, right? In the yeah, US. It's actually, yeah.
3: it's four. It's, it's uh, four ninety nine.
1: Four ninety nine.
2: Yeah. Okay. And the thing that one last thing, as you said we when we've stunted what we do before we have a season 2 we'll stunt this or the prior season this on prime great. video yeah so we've done it with two shows now and both of the shows that we premiered stunted season 1s of have been top 10 programs in prime video in the us in the us so again things will look to replicate mm. internationally yeah. but that really gives us such proof of concept, and just such a validation of the great programming that Michael has curated all these years, Um, and then what it leads to is people subscribing to watch the season two of the show they just fell in love with on Prime Video.
1: Right, Uh, that's the end of our session. We're out of time, so thank you so much. Thank you.
0: From the beginning of May till the end of September this year, US film and TV scribes were on strike as their union, the Writers Guild of America, sought to hammer out new contract terms with studios and streamers represented by the alliance of motion picture and television producers. Key to the dispute were issues over residuals and the potential impacts of artificial intelligence, particularly on the writers' rooms that have traditionally been the beating heart of US television. Showrunner, author and teacher Jeff Malvin Writer, producer and Airlift Productions founder Anna Winger and screenwriter and playwright Susie Miller spoke to Michael Picard about the conclusion of the strike, what's next for the writers' room model and the extent to which it's crossed the pond.
5: Delighted to be joined by a great panel to, to dig into the weeds a little bit um, about one of the biggest industry talking points of, of the year. Um, we're obviously all aware of the strikes that have recently uh, concluded, which is fantastic news uh, in the US. Um, And hopefully production will be back up and running, particularly in the UK, where we I think have realized how much of our industry is reliant on the studios uh, from the US using our studios. Um, So we hope that sort of levels out a bit next year. Um, So we're going to dig into that and and just get some viewpoints on on writers rooms, really from around the world. We have Susie, who's sort of based in Australia and works in L.A. and, and the UK as well. Anna, who people will know from her work in Germany, where she's based in Berlin. Um, and we have Jeff, who's a, a seasoned veteran showrunner um, of multiple projects in the U.S. Um, so maybe, Jeff, we'll start with you. Um, I think we're fairly, I hope we're all maybe aware of the origins of a writer's room model and, and perhaps how it was born out of the need for a, a 22, 24, 26 season episode that would run, what, September to, to May in the U.S. I mean, just tell us a bit about, um, as, as a you know, viewpoint from the U.S., what the strikes were about in terms of the writers room uh, issue and perhaps what the result of the strikes has, has been. It's a, it's a big topic, but uh, for about 30 or 40 years,
6: the American broadcast system had worked with rules that didn't—they necess- were never necessarily codified, they were driven by commerce, that uh, you had to do 22 episodes a year and, and the roots of American television go back to actually radio. Uh, radio was the first medium that was developed to uh, w- where a lot of pioneers thought, how can we put uh, 39 episodes of a show on every week and uh, and and make it of a certain quality? And when TV came along, uh, that system was simply transferred to. Uh, to television and television in the early days in the 60s 50s 60s they did 39 episodes a year and it was only when uh, the broadcasters discovered that the audience would sit still for reruns that they cut it down and it eventually became 22 episodes so you could repeat every episode and get 44 weeks of programming and uh, uh, and then you could stunt the, the other eight with with other things Um, and that was the universe that I started out in, in in the 80s. Um, things began to change when HBO broke through with The Sopranos and suddenly there was a completely different economic model, um, with, with subscription television, so it wasn't advertising driven. It wasn't uh, mass media, and HBO made a huge point of that by saying, you know, their mantra is it's not TV, it's HBO. And they were right. And those of us who were writing thought this is a great thing. You know, you could, you could, you didn't have to write with act breaks. You could, uh, you could have a completely different range of material. You weren't as subject to censorship. Uh, But but it didn't change the structure of the business. Uh, uh, David Chase came up through uh, conventional broadcast television, and The Sopranos, I forget how many episodes they did every season, but it was. It was more than eight. It was it was 13. ten, to thirteen. You know, so it was still it was still producing on a relatively long season, and it it wasn't really till Game of Thrones happened in, in 2013. It's only been ten years, but it it rocked everybody's world that that things began to change, and uh, they made their mark with shows that were shorter and intensely serialized and that could be binged. And uh, uh, we know that had a huge influence on consumer behavior, which then had a huge influence on how they wanted to run their shows. And uh, we've now seen that everything has its limits. I mean, a lot of people were trying to follow Netflix's lead and that looked like the road to the future and now it looks like a road off a cliff. And, uh, uh, but, but what's happened in the meantime to the, the structure and the, the customs that grew up with the 22 episode system in which the showrunner emerged as the leader of, uh, of most broadcast shows um, was threatened because when you start to get down to uh, eight episodes or six episodes, you don't need the same type of multitasking skills that a showrunner had um, you could begin to run it more like the old Hollywood model where the studio and the director would have more influence. Um, when I had the uh, privilege of working on Killing Eve over here, I saw how the British did things. I was always curious about how do they do things in Europe and and how do they put together six to eight episodes thinking that was a conscious choice. I don't think it was. I think it's that's the way the system grew up and they couldn't do more than six to eight episodes with the way that things run. Um, because the principal difference between how we do things in America and everywhere else is that in America, the writer is perceived as labor and management and everywhere else in the world virtually, the writer is perceived as labor only and does not have a place at the production table. Um, As my friend Emma Frost said, they pat you on the head and say, you can go back to the sandbox now and let the adults produce the show. And uh, uh, so what happened, and it's a long answer, but 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 you need the context, is that uh, the way that the streamers operated is they suddenly realized if you're going to be demanding all the scripts in advance and you're gonna cross-board them, um, it's not the same model as when we were writing continuously through 22 episodes. So they discovered well, we'll get the scripts in advance, we'll do a mini room, uh, which is a terrible term because it, it can be used to describe any number of different sins, but essentially the mini room meant we'll get the writing done first, we'll dismiss the writers, and then we'll just carry the the, the lead writer, the showrunner through, Um, to handle whatever, uh, because the the assumption is, well, the scripts are done. We all know scripts are not done before they are actually shot. You know, they they go to prep and you have to make all sorts of adjustments and, and then through production. And then for those of us who are privileged to have final cut, post-production is the final rewrite. And, uh, uh, and and in America, the showrunner has final cut. And so you're actually seeing everything through. Anyway, so the, the fundamental thing was that entire way of doing business was being threatened and undermined by the way the streamers were doing it. And whether it's, it was by intent or, 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 or just um, inadvertent, it was real. and. Uh, it was um, it, destabilizing everything that we had um, had been doing for the last forty years, and what our union had really fought for. And so this strike was to establish some ground rules and saying, no writers need to be there. Need to be a certain minimum number of writers on a show. They need to be maintained through a certain period. They need to be carried through to production. Because one of the things that happened is if if you had written the show, and then your writers' room is dismissed, and you get to uh, production and suddenly scripts have to be rewritten while you have to be doing other tasks as the, as the show runner. You're, you're gonna get burnt out. You need other people to help with those sort of things. And as we talked about in the green room, either you could delegate some of the production responsibilities to a deputy or you could be doing, the, uh, doing those and having them doing the rewriting, whatever under your supervision. So those were the fundamental things. And so what we emerged with, and it was a huge victory for the Guild, um, is minimum staffing requirements that are on a sliding scale, depending on how many episodes uh, are being written and and, uh, and and the writers have to be carried through through a certain point in production. And um, th- those two things alone, Just there had never been a need in a contract to mention that a show needed writers. It was just assumed. But we felt this time around, we had to mention that, no, a show needs writers and these are the number of writers that need, you need for this many episodes. And it's also... Uh, the first time that showrunner has appeared in official language in a contract. Um, you're still gonna see it as executive producer, but the term has always been um, an informal term in, in a sense. You'll see eight executive producers listed for a show, but only one of them usually is the showrunner. And now it specifies that of, these, of the writer-producers who are hired on a show, one has to be designated the showrunner. And I could
5: talk more, but I've already talked too much. So, But that's-, that's um, uh, Anna, do you wanna pick up from there? Because you're a seasoned showrunner in your own right, but you run your shows very differently.
7: Well, not really. As I learned backstage, actually, I'm I'm now ready to go to America because it's different from what I thought. But I, you know, I, I live in Berlin. I've produced all of my shows out of Berlin. I have my own company with Camille McCurry, who's here also, and we, um, so we have a kind of what I think of as a hybrid, actually, because, you know, I am management and labor, and everything we do is writer-driven. You know, we also are working with young writers who stay on as producers in the course of production and learn how to be showrunners, and now, you know, we're developing their work also. So, you know, we... Explicitly are looking to work as, I mean, for me, be, writers are at the center of the television process, you know, both my own projects and the projects that I produce and i think it's i think it's essential that the writer be the producer on the show because if you change something in episode 6 and it kicks back in every direction and if you don't have somebody involved with the whole thing from like soup to nuts who understands the intention of every scene i just don't i actually don't understand how that works even though i respect that great tv is made in england and you know all over britain without Without that, it's just that having only made you know the work that I've made, it's, it's, I, I feel like the writer is an essential part of the process all across the production. So yeah, we do do a hybrid in a way. But I had always understood, one thing we just clarified backstage, is what I understood from the outside, and Susie understood the same thing, is that the writer's minimum required six writers for no matter how many episodes. And so we were both thinking, like, how would I manage six writers? Because, like, in my case, we have rooms, but I'm a heavy rewriter and kind of, you know, showrunner. And so having two writers who follow the process through as producers makes a lot of sense to me. But having six would be hard with, with so few episodes, you know. And I understand it with, with 22, and that's something else. But, um, but yeah, he explained that it uh, really depends on how many episodes you're doing, how many writers you're required to employ. And just in case anyone else had that misunderstanding mm-hmm. too, it, it, for me that's revelatory because, mm-hmm. you know, I have a couple of American projects, so I, it makes me feel differently about that system. But, you know, obviously the, the way you, you make great TV in America has been the example to all of us in Europe, uh, you know, with the writer's room model is an incredible thing. It's just that we're working on much lower budgets. So when you're when you're dealing with way less money, the question is how do you how, how do you do that really you know how do you employ so many people on with much lower budgets so that's um, that's the challenge of it
6: you know right and as you say there's a sliding scale now also there's a provision like for the Mike Whites of this world if you want to declare at the beginning of a show that you're going to write yes. all the episodes yeah that's still allowable. You just have to put it out there so that there's no misconception about that. And so it's not even a waiver, it's just if I'm gonna do that, then you're gonna write all the episodes. Yeah, that makes sense.
5: And Susie, you're a playwright as sort of by trade, by background and (laughs) used to working on your own. So what's your kind of impression of Rooms as a a concept? What's
4: really interesting for me is I work in Australia, the UK and the US and I have a different model for each one. But I think what's really come clear to us backstage is that if it's six episodes or under, you only need to have two other writers in America. And now it means to me that the work that I, I have, a small production company in America, in L.A., and the idea of that is there's a lot of IP that I have because I have 40 plays that I've written over time, a lot of which people are interested in turning into TV shows. I don't want to write every episode of those because I've spent a lot of time with each one already. A lot of the work I do that's original is here or Australia, like ideas that I've had that have turned into television. But with that, with with the American model now, I realise that actually the smart thing would be to keep them all at six, six eps per series <laughs> because that keeps it quite containable and it means that tonally, I can supervise what all the episodes are and make sure that it's akin to what the actual underlying ip is but I and maybe write the pilot but not necessarily write all the others which which just means I've got more time freed up to do some of the work I do over here which is all original work and in Australia and, um, and I think here I can see now, you know, you could do anything from four to eight to ten. But ten's probably my maximum anyway in terms of what I can... Like, in, like the way that I write stories obviously as a playwright is that I have something that's usually about two hours long in my head. And then I actually want to extra- extrapolate that into something that's got a whole series attached. 22 eps is something that I've never had any understanding of how it works. <laughs> but I was um, until we saw Jeff backstage and could actually ask this yeah. question, we all assumed that you had to have five five. ...writers, even if it was six eps, which to me was like... ...that's really going to put a problem in my little... ...my company structure as to how we do pan out that IP. Um, But, you know, it's interesting to me how different it is... ...working in all those three zones. Like in Australia there's a flexibility about who's on. You can start as an authored piece, change it once you've actually got to a point... ...where you think, I'd like to bring someone in to write another episode. You can mentor young writers and they can have a draft... ...that not not necessarily the next draft and so on. Um, Here in the UK... I find that a lot of the producers I work here are so writerly that there's a lot of what I would call dramaturgy in theatre that comes from the producers. also the producers that I've chosen to work with in Australia are similar. They actually have a really strong understanding of story and even though they're not writers, I feel like they give good, really good notes, which is helpful and something that I now realise doesn't always happen. So choosing the producers you work with I think is really important. Um, And also just I I recognise particularly in the UK the trust on the writer as storyteller, as the keeper of the story is something that I'm very attracted to. I just think that writers do know story and, you know, sometimes you you can throw something into a story to change it because of maybe an insecurity of a producer or something they've heard that week or someone they've spoken to that said they're doing something similar. And sometimes you can ruin the story by having... I guess, throwing something in, in the middle of it when it's already intact. And we were talking about how writers already have a framing device in their head for a show, whether it's visible or not is another thing. But I think writers just need to be trusted that little bit more that they actually are the ones that really know the story in their mind.
5: Is that more of a shift for the producers to sort of trust more, the writers more than than? They have been maybe.
4: Uh, Possibly, and I think the new writer-producer model actually means that producers go, oh, okay, so you're also a producer, which means that we discuss this. It's not just something that's, I guess, planted in there. Um, Oh, Sorry. I don't want
7: to overstate the budget thing, but I think it matters. Like, you know, someone has to make decisions about how the money is spent, and if you're the person who really understands the intention of, of what you're writing, you also can make the decisions about how to cut it or how to reduce cost. Without compromising the story, and even sometimes those those decisions are, um, you know, make it better. But it's it's a question of someone who cares about the story and understands it really clearly making those decisions, rather than those being top down decisions that then sort of eliminate parts of the story. You know, often things look more expensive on the page than they need to be, and the show running process is so much about figuring out how to make the show you want to make with the money that you have to make it.
6: And it's a great yeah, it's what I call horse trading. Horse yeah. trading with the line yeah. producer is 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 it produces some amazing stuff, you yes. know. But but you're absolutely right that The showrunner is the one who knows. Well, that's you know we we said that we needed a restaurant that had a flamingo neon sign, but but that's not really important, you know, or it might be important. You say because there's other clues in earlier episodes, it has to be that flamingo, or you can say no, forget that. It can be any restaurant, and and only you can make those kind of decisions. But uh, there are a lot of barriers to the showrunner model outside of the United States, and they're being broken down by people like this panel. Um, But we shouldn't underestimate the challenges because. The, it's not just a question of infrastructure and economic model. There's a whole cultural, psychological dimension to it too. If, if uh, I, I think that there's an interesting convergence going on now, because if we if we take the showrunner model in the United States as a apotheosis, 22 episodes. Well, we know that that's that form of television. I wouldn't say is necessarily doomed, but it's certainly not as important as it used to be. Yeah.
5: I was, I was going to say how much of this is old models versus new models, and trying to find a, a middle ground, perhaps that isn't really there. Well,
6: I think we're all the, the word that I use is convergence. I think that that there's there are things from productions around the world that Americans need to, to 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 learn from, and there's a lot that people can learn from America. And I think we're all going to have to be more collaborative and recognize that that uh, uh, just as was said here that that the showrunner is the one who can make your most efficient show it can be the best creative product at the best price just give us the opportunity to weigh in and participate in those discussions and then the other thing is also that the more the greater the volume of episodes the greater the pace of production and the leaner the budget the more persuasive the argument for the showrunner becomes and that's what you were saying yeah. is that is that because everything that we're talking about Adds up to more economy. Uh, you can, you can, if if you can make those decisions. And I do think, based on what's going, we're all we're all sailing into the wind right now. We know we're entering into a period of great contraction, and I'm very wary of of things appearing to be. Well, this is the way it's going to be from from now on. It it appeared that these eight episode, ten episode, six episode. A brilliant, serialized, heavily serialized dramas. That's that's it for the future. Well, it's not so. I mean, it's 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 going to be a both and universe, not an either or. So, um, having grown up with 22 episodes and all the people that created great streaming television, many of them grew up in the same model. Whether it was David Chase or Vince Gilligan or Matt Weiner, we all began uh, in broadcast, and so it's a it's it's there's a great lineage there. And um, but but I also feel the consumers. Um, if you talk to people anecdotally, not only do they say there's too much product, but I know every time I sit down to a meal, I don't want a nine course meal every time, which is the way I think about succession or something like that. I, you know, it's just, you get, you have to use all your faculties. I also like to have my fish and chips or or whatever. And, uh, you know, it, it, um, and I think, I think regardless of that, before the strike, they said there were 599 scripted shows being written for an American audience. I don't know how they arrived at that number, and not 600, but uh, they said 599, and then talking to my friends who are in the know, most people think that's gonna drop to 400 or perhaps even 300 within a couple of years. That's a huge difference. John Landgraf, who coined the phrase peak TV in 2015, he coined the phrase because he thought we had reached the peak. He thought it was done. And how many shows were there in, in in 2015? 420. He thought that was too many. So it's not that crazy to think that the number can drop down to lower. But, but here's my other part of that, is that I think the appetite for episodes isn't gonna reduce as proportionately as the number of shows. Meaning, I think more shows are gonna have to produce more episodes uh, in order to fulfill the appetite that's out there, whether it's 10, 13, it might not get back to 22. Um, but any system that favors more than, I think, eight episodes uh, is gonna need more of the showrunner skills for the reasons that we're discussing. I'll get off my soapbox, but that's, uh, that's. Uh, but I, I, I do think that that's, uh, that's gonna change one the- One of the
7: challenges, the, yeah. at least in Europe, is that, is that I mean, I, I've never worked in the UK, but in Europe is that, um, you know, you ha- you'd only learn how to do this by doing it, right? So somebody has to let you do it with them. And it's really important that there be showrunners who have writers who work as producers with them otherwise how are they supposed to learn how to show run you know it's a, it's a that's how you learn how to do it and you can go to school for it I guess but you don't then you're just a professor of theoretical television and the only way you really learn how to do it is by actually doing it and you know we we experience that every day in, at our company because we have people who you really see how someone who's never been in a sound mix of something they were there when they shot it and then they suddenly understand what it's like after it's been sound mixed you know these are all these details makeup music All of it, you know, is those every all these moving parts that make up what you see on TV are are kind of equally important, you know, and to be involved in something from the script process until the finished product, including, by the way, in my opinion, promoting it, cutting trailers, you know, launching it into the world, PR, all of that, the whole process of like really making something and giving it life in the world, is really important. So I think, you know, we don't have a union and we don't have a way of enforcing that people include, you know, other people in the process. But I think the more that writers are in charge as producers themselves, the more they'll see that it's useful to them to have other writers working with them as, you know, deputies, because that's really how they're going to learn how to do it. And then certainly for me as a producer, producing the work of someone I know has been through the process, doing their show makes a lot more sense to me. You know, so that's,
5: and those sort of training opportunity. I know that was a big thing as well in the, in the, the negotiations, wasn't it, opportunities for junior writers to, to learn the craft of show running and have that you know, rise up, that hierarchy, is that a, available? Yeah, I mean,
6: it, it, there was always a de facto apprenticeship in yeah. the broadcast system. And uh, there, there were a lot of disadvantages to the way things used to work, but one of the advantages was you actually saw everything. And by the time you could pitch a show, they wouldn't let you pitch a show if you'd only, it, until you had four, six, eight uh, years of experience. And uh, that could be debilitating because it worked for them because they kind of leached all the creativity out of you before you could actually pitch anything. <laughs> and, and and so you'd say, well, my detective's blind or my detective's a father and daughter. And, and that was the variation that they wanted. Um, they didn't really want, you know, as I say, I wrote a book, which will be on sale after this, um, but, um, <laughs> but it just came out in September called Running the Show. And and so I tried to put a lot of this down in there, but they, what I say in there is that Before you could sound like nobody else, you had to sound like everybody else. And the fact is, they didn't want you to sound like nobody else. It was mass media. And now, of course, we prize the original voice and and, and that sensibility but the advantage was you did learn things, and what happened was when the network suddenly reversed course in the face of The Sopranos, suddenly having TV experience was like a contagion. Um, they, They wanted somebody fresh out of film school or somebody who just had a short film at Sundance, which is great because these are very creative people, but they don't know a thing about producing a TV show, so a lot of shows were failing not because there wasn't talent, but there was no expertise, and so, that's why I started I approached John Wells when he was president of the of the guild and said let's let's start a showrunner training program um, I was somewhat inspired by the directors Guild uh, assistant director training program but uh, and now we're entering our 19th year of doing that and um, but it, it, it can't it can't begin to fill the need for information and but what, what you know every, any, everything you sent out I can't believe that you've been able to create this oasis for yourself in Germany because <laughs> Um, I've worked with the difficult. the European Showrunner program out of Cologne out of the Institute of Film of Cologne and so for the last 2 years I've worked with 12 terrific writer producers from 12 different countries all of whom have their own unique complaints uh and and barriers and uh including writers from Germany so I'm I'm curious how you've been able to break through Well
7: you know I just don't I guess I don't know I I don't I'm not German I'm American, but I've never worked in America. You know, I, I don't really, there isn't a box that's easy for me to fit in. So I think I just had to make the road by walking, you know? So I probably benefited from not clearly understanding what wasn't possible. Does that, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? You I don't was know just the rules. Like, so, yeah, yeah, I was like, okay, well, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it like this. Also, I should explain that my background is as a photographer, I was a commercial photographer and art photographer for years and i produced all my own work so for me being you know integrally involved in the production of my own execution of my own ideas is i've always done that so show running was like it, there was no possibility I wasn't going to be a showrunner. You know, that made sense to me as a writer. So,
5: yeah. um, Susie, tell us a bit about what you're developing perhaps and, and how you're trying to establish oh, yeah. yourself within yeah. the framework of these shows.
4: Sure. It's, it's interesting to me because as a playwright, you own copyright in your work all the time. So you make all the decisions about the writing and it's supported by the producers and the directors from day one. So I kind of arrived into television with that expectation, which I realized other TV writers didn't have that. And I thought, oh, okay, so you don't, you know, it, it, it's... A- but I still live like I do have those rights. So in a way, I am a, a writer-producer in that in that, in that that role. Um, and I do really strongly believe in the writer as really the, the person that really takes care of the story. And I've been really lucky in the producers I've worked with. They've kind of said, yes, you are in charge of the story. And they're very supportive of that. But um, I do notice the difference in, in the different jurisdictions. And I think the real difference for me is in the preliminary documentation. So for example, in the UK, I'm working with sort of working title and um, Film Nation and some of uh, uh, Drama Republic and some of those and what's really interesting for me is that a three-page outline um, is and something that you can pitch is is a very very quickly moved into a pitching document that we then take to market after you know you know know what the story is but in Australia, it really is like a 50-page bible plus an episode plus a, like a pitch deck, which feels like by the time you've written all those short—not short documents, but long documents—is that you sometimes think, oh, you know, like I could have written the whole series in this time. As a playwright, that you know, that's how you're expected to work. So um, you know, I, it's taken me a while to get around that kind of production expectation of all those documents. And I can see the benefit in some of them now. But other times I think don't kill the frog while you're dissecting it. (laughs) Like you can make it, you know, you want to have some mystery and some excitement going forward. And so there's a a balance between those two things. And I think um, it's been interesting for me to cross cross, oceans, I guess. But also just as a playwright with that expectation that I do have full responsibility for the story means that um, and you have your own voice, a very distinct voice as a playwright you must... And I think there's also little tricks of the trade in theatre that I realise TV doesn't use that they could use really beautifully and very succinctly to get to something quite powerful a little bit more quickly, to be honest. But, you know, I don't know that many playwrights who are right... I mean, there's some from Australia that are here that I know. But, you know, it's, it's so like we sometimes get together and go, gee, you know, if they did that, it'd be so easy for them. But they don't do it that way. So, um, you know, so I, I kind of sneak some of my little um, <laughs> little theater hacks in there, um, and you know, just having a dramaturg in theater who's someone that you just basically use as a sounding board for your ideas rather than another writer necessarily, is actually really useful, because they read it, they feed feedback, and they're not necessarily a producer, they're someone writerly minded and have an overall understanding, but they really get writing.:
7: They have that here. That, we don't have that in Germany, but they have mm. story editors here. Yeah. We're effectively like dramaturgs, aren't we? Yeah,
4: they? here yeah. they have it. They yeah. don't have it in Australia yeah, quite the in same way, either. like not in that early sort of like first draft, second draft. But yeah, like the dramaturg in Germany is so high up in theatre, I can see how it would translate to having it in Germany as no, well. Oh, we don't have oh, it you in don't TV have it at in all. Germany. No, 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 oh, but, um, but, but yeah.
7: in England they have, they have story editors. Story editors yeah. were yeah. amazing.
6: Yeah. 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 My reaction to script editors was funny because we were we – were, we don't have the position in the United States. And no, and right. so Suzanne Heathcote and I were hi- were hiring what we thought was a writer's assistant. And, and they were actually, they thought they were coming up for script editor job. And when they explained their job to me, I said, okay, so wait a minute, you, your job as a script editor is you talk to the producer and you bring their notes back to us and expect us to execute those notes, but you're not a writer. <laughs> and, and they said, I said, oh, I get it you're a spy. They didn't appreciate <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was my first that, reaction. That, and I, is that I,
7: what they do? I didn't think that. Well, no. uh,
6: I, I, I didn't quite understand the position, and that, that was a rather unfair characterization yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I understand there are some very effective script editors, but it's just to say that the mm. that the, the systems are very different. And very and different. What, the, what the script editor position speaks to is a much more producer-driven environment than we have in the United States. I'm mean, a non-writing producer. But I think what's important to emphasize uh, is we all have to be and it's more resourceful and flexible and, and collaborative as we look mm-hmm. to the future. And I think I've always been suspicious of the auteur theory anyway. Uh, we all know who anybody who works in the collaborative medium, there are a lot of people responsible for the success of a project. And there are always those individuals who mm-hmm. deserve that title. I mean, they are so distinctive that, uh, that at least you can say, okay, that's, we can allow for that. But in most cases, those of us who are less than superhuman, um, yes, you can be in charge of the production, but you need to surround yourself with great mm-hmm. people and you wanna share that credit with those people. And, yeah. uh, and I th- one of the things that, that I sense from talking to a number of European writer producers is there's great resistance and fear of the showrunner title as if we're both fighting for command of the, yeah, uh, yeah. Of the controls yeah. at an airplane. And, and while we're fighting, the plane's gonna crash. Yeah. Um, the big
7: thing that they're afraid of is that they think that the writer doesn't care about the money. Yeah. That's a huge thing. They think they're going to be bankrupted, or understand by the, the money. Writer. Yeah, yeah. That that that's the, at least my impression is that that's the. But that's only because they're not teaching the writers about how the money mm. is spent. And if they were to teach them that, then they would.
6: Well, they it's 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 about power, isn't it? It's about authority. And and uh, mm-hmm. as Emma Frost, t- we were talking about this, said, you know, no turkey ever votes for Christmas. Um, <laughs> no, but no, nobody wants to give up yeah. power voluntarily. So I think that that for a number of people, depending on your country and on the culture, if if you want to be given more responsibility as a writer-producer, first you have to demonstrate that you know what you're talking about. Um, And you've also got to demonstrate this is the best way to make the show we all want to make and you're also not looking to take sole control of anything. That would be a mistake. And it's increasingly, I think, something Americans have to learn even within America because of the way things are working. Um, that, uh, it's, it's, that there has to be this idea that the showrunner model, as you well described it, is the best way to make an efficient, effective, creative show, but mm-hmm. a lot of people need to be involved. But like I said, the threat um, to existing producers of surrendering power to a writer, um, I think is real, and yeah. I think that uh, that's a that's a tough challenge for a number of people that I've talked to. Is how do we convince mm-hmm. the powers that be that actually you need to share a little bit of the mm-hmm. authority with me? I just want a place at the table. I don't need to take over the table. Yeah. I mean, eventually I want to take over the table, but <laughs> but uh, but uh, but at least I want to start by having a seat at the table, and, that, yeah. and that's been difficult for people. I don't know what the experience of the audience
5: is, but well, that's we've that, got a few minutes left. We started late, so I think we're allowed to run a little bit on. Are there any questions?
8: Uh, well, I was just wondering, um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk of AI. AI was part of the WGA negotiations as well. I've had a producer literally tell me just a couple of weeks ago that maybe Chat GPT should
6: replace some voices in the writer's room. Um, I was wondering how you guys see that opportunity threat. Well, I think, without doubt, if a studio could replace us with machines, they would. Um, but I, I don't really see that as a serious threat at this point um and uh, i i think that uh, the, the provisions that we got in the strike are that that ai cannot be a writer of a show um but the fact is um first of all ai isn't just one thing and we can't be luddites and say let's put the genie back in the bottle the genie's not going back in the bottle um, so how do we use it and right now if we were all part of a staff and or if I you know if Anna gave me an assignment to write a script about a certain thing I might go home and go to Chachi BT and say give me several ideas I mean and there's nothing stopping an individual writer from doing that but all it's doing is scraping all this information and trying to say this is what's been done before and as as good writers usually we do that too if you're gonna do something like transatlantic you're gonna say what one are, of what are, what are my competition what am I com- being compared to what is what's really worked in this field before and what hasn't and if you you can have something that delivers that information quickly to you, uh, it's just saved you some time. Has it replaced an assistant? I don't necessarily think so. But so, so my quick response is that um, I don't see, I, I think it's much more of a threat to performers in every field than it is right now to what we do.
4: I mean, I went to the development, AI and development for writers here and it was really eye-opening for me because there's no way it's going to replace writers. I just can't believe that's possible. But I just thought that, you know, if you want to write a pitch deck quickly or just get something looking decent quickly, and that's the stuff that's more copywriting than script writing and it's great to think you can get that stuff done quite quickly rather than labouring over sort of basically marketing speak that that has nothing to do really with your actual writing skill as an artist. So I think can be useful in that regard and so and actually that was a really informative they gave you all the different ones and what they do all the different ai engines and some of them were quite remarkable i thought oh that would be quite useful actually but you know i went in very cynical and came out thinking oh it could be a tool for development fantastic
5: well i think we're probably pushing our time so um i'm sure the panel will make themselves available to any more questions but otherwise please thank you for joining us and thank the panel
0: Now over to Nico Franks to introduce our next interview. Set to
8: air on Christmas Eve in Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland and Sweden next week, the Nordic Christmas Hour features a variety of beloved Christmas stories created by various animation studios from across the Nordics. An initiative from Norway-based Kivisten Animation in collaboration with Norwegian podcaster NRK, It now has all the Nordic public broadcasters on board, and the plan is for the tradition to continue well beyond 2023, with writing already underway on animated films that will air in 2024. I spoke to Kivisten Animation CEO, Frederik Kjostrud about the process of producing the films and how it could serve as a template for Nordic animation studios and broadcasters to co-produce non-festive animated programming in the future. We also discussed the impact tools that use artificial intelligence may have on the animation industry in 2024 and beyond, as animators worry about the future of their roles, while bosses at studios look to cut costs and make the production process more efficient.
9: Well, we launched uh, the Nordic Christmas Hour last last Christmas in um, all the Nordic countries uh, for the first time. And uh, that program was sort of, a, the idea was uh, founded between uh, NRK at, here in Norway and Kristen Animation, and um, it's meant to be the new tradition at uh, the uh, on Christmas Day here in Norway. I mean, we, I grew up with the, the Disney hour, which still is on TV, which has been for decades. And... Uh, this thing is sort of a program put together to gather all the Nordic storytellers and to be become a tradition on Christmas morning as well, hopefully. Uh, it will be running for 15 years, is the plan. So this is the second year moving into a tradition for Christmas, for families. So 15 years, okay. So
8: are you a fan of Christmas? Does that help?
9: Hey, yeah, I mean, uh, I am a fan of Christmas and most Norwegians are very into the the Christmas tradition. And, um, of course, it's it's an issue whether the families stick around TV at a given point on linear TV. But the numbers from all over the Nordic countries last year was that, okay, this this is a program that attracts the family and was seen, I think, speaking from a Norwegian point, NRK, did much more viewers than they believed uh, launching it. So uh, I guess it's the traditions uh, during Christmas time are quite strong and uh, we got to learn that they are quite strong throughout uh, all of the Nordics. Uh, Finland did great, Denmark did great. So yeah, I'm a fan. And obviously then (laughs) the the Nordic children families are a fan of it, uh, watching it either Christmas Eve or first day of Christmas. So it's a little bit different. And are
8: you finding people are looking for that thing that they can all watch together? Because obviously there's multi-generations coming together at Christmas. Everyone's potentially looking for that thing that can unite them all, is going to please them all, and not have everyone watching their own thing on their own devices, which would be a bit depressing at Christmas.
9: I think that's quite uh, an important uh, reason for this becoming so popular that I mean both the younger ones and the the parents to put it that way are seeking for some time together sharing something on the screen with something some cookies and some cocoa on the table So, so I think that's especially during Christmas time. And I guess that's uh, the same in UK, I guess, that also the cinemas fill up with family films and people seem to want to, to be together and enjoy something in common. So, yeah, I think uh, especially on Christmas Eve, sitting down, preparing for the dinner and the, the presents and all they have, uh i think really people want that on those days
8: and so is it six studios from six different countries that you're that are taking part this year
9: yeah there are uh, studios from all over the nordic countries iceland norway denmark sweden and finland there were two different chapters from both Denmark and Finland. That's uh, So we were seven studios at all, yeah, working on it together. And I think that was one of the... One thing was to gather all these famous authors and all the traditional uh, heritage of uh, those books. Uh, for us as a studio, I think that we work together with let's say, the best studios in the Nordics. It became some sort of a a family of both the IPs and the authors and the studios and actually the broadcasters. So the whole project became sort of a very Nordic uh, collaboration. I mean, these other studios, we do work with them once in a while, but everyone was heading towards the deadline, making their very best. and. to sort of show both all the all the other countries how they sold it, uh, design-wise and animation-wise. There are all kinds of techniques in the program. Uh, but also, uh, hopefully, to, to, to show the world some of these great stories from our part of the world. So, yeah, we became kind of a, a Nordic family.
8: And obviously, Christmas is a time for giving, but I'm assuming these producers weren't doing it All out the goodness of their own heart. So, how was the kind of funding model for
9: this? It's not done uh, totally out of a good heart, but but I think everyone put that little extra into it. But it was uh, started with a collaboration with the the broadcasters who who threw in sort of their chapter in a way. And then, of course, there were some fundings from the Norwegian Film Institute, so from Finland, uh, Denmark Film Institute. So, it was sort of putting it all together and that each country and each studio took care of their regional funding. And then the actually we brought the broadcasters together as well. I mean, all of these guys working so closely throughout the Nordic has been spoken of long after Christmas. So it was sort of, I think all the broadcasters put a little extra into it. The studios put a little extra into it and we got the, the funding to to raise the whole program. So, but, but I think it became not a competition, but a bit a cool thing with the project was that each studio, actually we were competing in a friendly way, sort of showing the other ones how we would solve it and our take on it. So with so all of those elements, it became really a high-end program. It is really high-end from with the contribution of every studio involved. Is one distributor taking care of all the films
8: together or are the production companies kind of individually getting the rights to their, to what they created to distribute?
9: Oh, uh, and there was set quite strict rules from the, the IP owners or I mean the, the, the authors. So the program was bought for each country from the broadcaster and it's not possible or allowed to, to take out parts and, and, do anything with it. It's a set format for all the countries. And uh, there's been so much, I mean, there's so many into this. It's the broadcasters, it's the authors, and it's the studios. So we haven't, uh, we have one distributor for worldwide, but we're still uh, working on all those contracts to get it out on the worldwide market. But it will be represented by one distributor for the rest of the world uh, as one format and closed with all these, as a link and Mummy and everything so so it uh, we are looking towards the rest of the world as
8: we speak we know animation can take a long time to produce so how early do you have to start thinking about these films in in the year and when you're looking ahead to 2024 when does the work start
9: this program will sort of, 60% of it will be set for the for the next uh, 10 years, to put it that way. It's sort of that put, we try to establish that some of these chapters are uh, consistent and will stay throughout all these years. And then we start, there is a possibility for each country to add a new chapter mm-hmm. or take one out and bring one in for each region. And we're starting now with a the Norwegian. There might be that we make another chapter for the, the, um, the Christmas in 24. And of course, as you say, a, a new chapter of five, six, seven, eight minutes take approximately a year, actually, to, to produce. So so we're now writing a, a new, new story um, with some of the authors that will come on board for 24. So, and that's... I think that this program is built around the, the old stories that uh, I grew up with as well, but it's also meant to be the, a, a format and a program that allows new authors and new IPs to, to show up uh, for a year or two or something. So it's it's kind of a dynamic program. Uh, someone are set for the tradition to be, and some spaces are open for bringing new voices to the screen from the nordics
8: it's a bit of a dystopian thought but we're seeing evidence that not too long in the future generative ai software you'll be able to type in make me a 10 minute animation involving a snowman and nordic mythology and there there we go obviously it wouldn't be broadcast quality but how conscientious are you of of that potential future
9: well um and that's easy for uh, might be easy for uh, some of us at the studio to say that i think today ai will be a a very useful tool but as you say uh, one can get a bit of frightened by the whole thing as well because as you say then the next christmas hour could be done in 10 minutes by a person writing it in. But uh, I think we discussed it quite a lot. And I mean, that discussion exploded this year. Uh, We are focusing very much in the studio that uh, there will be needed people and hands on deck. But definitely all the tools and everything we can use uh, AI to. Uh, we just in a way have to wish welcome what we as a studio are afraid of are not being part of that development and uh, ask say progression I mean it, it it's come here and uh, we have to learn it and we have to put it into our productions so, I mean the, the Pro- producers and the script writers are using some tools to to, to help them out with the writing and the sketching and so on. And even the animators are integrating some tools and so on to to help out. But at the end of the line, we we do believe that some people need to direct even the AI. I don't have a good answer, but as a company, we've sort of said that we need to to say we have to say welcome to it and don't be afraid of it and uh, if it becomes a tool that makes the nordic christmas hour in ten tenure someone will have to come up with the idea of bringing these stories together and so on so we yeah <laughs> i don't have the accurate answer to it but just this summer Quite a lot of the artists in the studio became kind of frightened and what will you do? And uh, will I lose my job? But I think that we have to say no, but you'll have to learn to use the tools, and uh, that will gain more time to spend on creating stuff and challenging the AI. Hopefully, we'll be here every Christmas as long as the Nordic Christmas runs. Every one of us that's my hope for this Christmas.
8: Norway has some incredible animation schools, doesn't it? There's one in Viborg, the animation workshop. What do you think? And you, you kind of referenced it there about students who have maybe recently graduated, who are worried about their long term future. What are the kind of things you can tell them and, and what are you advising them to do?
9: For the new students, of course, they will uh, be juniors and not that experienced, which they could think that, okay, then an AI would outwork the deliverance from a junior. But, but still, I do believe that someone, and it has to be content and entertainment is between people. And I think that there will always have to be someone that challenges and uses and gets the ID. So you need to sort of get all these uh, juniors into the studio as well. As we say, if if we don't get juniors in, there will never be seniors in the studio. So I think that's a responsibility we have as a studio also, that instead of jumping on this and uh, scaling down people and scaling up computers, I think we need people to, to create and deliver and, challenge and think otherwise than the AI I mean that 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 sounds maybe how should we think differently from the AI but still I embrace that uh, the young ones educate into this branch and uh, as far as twisten can uh, set some rules we will, Try as long as possible to keep uh, the doors open for the young ones. We need that uh, as a studio. I mean, even for me, if if this studio was just containing computers and I was shouting Nordic Christmas Hour episode 43, (sighs) uh, we need people. It's a simple answer in a way, but but still. What kind of channels, formats, uh, people change? uh, We need to be open minded and see what kind of uh, channels and uh, devices are the stories told on and so on. So I do believe in people. What about
8: the attitude from broadcasters and streamers that you talk to? Are they interested in whether you're you how much you're using AI at the moment?
9: No, they—they're not. Um, but I have to say that uh, AI uh, in our studio—we have sort of—we're uh, working on it on two different levels. And that is as a as a small studio in in Norway. Uh, one thing is all the tools and uh, and uh, things you can use in the actual production. What we are part of at the moment is a big science project uh, funded by the Norwegian government on how we can use AI to predict what uh, our audience worldwide, for our sake, uh, would uh, embrace or uh, want to see. And, and and that's kind of a cool project because, uh, I mean, the big uh, streamers such as Netflix and all the other ones, they have Tremendous loads of data and so on that they can uh, use for their um, productions and uh, creations. And uh, this project, where we are actually through Roblox uh, being able to to play and ask uh, our main audience, which are from the Kristen studio point of view, youngsters from six to 15. That's our. Our films and content are mostly made for kids and youngsters, so and, and and that's turning you to become a really helpful tool, sort of to 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 find out what is the next big hit. So, but from from knowing that okay, this is what they actually want to to see or uh, explore, uh, then we're going into the production phase and creation phase, which is still as we did it five years ago in a way that would help all the tools so so i think uh, for a small studio ai is very useful for getting kind of data and uh, insight and what have you to to sort of compete and deliver to the big uh, broadcasters and streamers
8: as well as the Nordic Christmas Hour, whatever other projects can we expect from from you in twenty twenty four?
9: From our studio, we are um, in production with four feature films at the, at the moment, uh, and actually the the first film, uh, which target with a target audience, uh, I would say fourteen plus. It's uh, it's a quite. Um, over the top film which is called Spermageddon which is a, a race with all the sperms uh, which is a is a which is a really cool film also because we usually work with a 6 to 10 years old audience uh, Kristen has produced some 20 features with that audience so so that one is releasing uh, September next year and then we have uh, three other features in production, but uh, next year it, we will only premiere one one film. All, with that said, we're, we're premiering this Christmas, the Astrid Lindgren's Christmas Hour. The, the Swedes really wanted their very own, uh, just by... Pippi Longstocking and Emil and uh, all of the famous characters that Astrid Lindgren wrote. So that one is premiering now this Christmas in uh, Sweden and uh, on the streaming streamers. And we're developing quite some more features and TV series. So so 24 will be quite a lot of production and developing into some, uh, some hopefully international big films.
8: And finally, one thing we've been writing a lot about at C twenty one in twenty twenty three has been the contraction of the streaming market in the Nordics. How has that impacted you as an animation producer? Were was Viaplay kind of an active buyer for you mm-hmm. that has suddenly kind of withdrawn?
9: Yeah. And that's kind of a dramatic situation up in uh, the Nordics, especially with the Viaplay. via play. I mean, they were really offensive uh, offensive uh, buying quite a lot, both animation, but also of course uh, very much on TV series and so on. So which make that there are less money up in the Nordics to to fill up the other studios and are as well wrapping it up with the Nordic Christmas Hour, in a way, that we're now starting to talk together in the Nordic countries. And we have to seek and focus even more on the international market than we have has done. Uh, for our studio, we have been doing quite a lot of uh, Scandinavian films, gotten the funding from Play or the Film Institute and so on. Now sort of everyone is fighting for the same money at the Film Institute, so we need to both gather, I think, the Nordic countries go much more as one region together, and it forces us to think much more that the stories that we create and want to tell, they have to resonate a lot more internationally than doing the, the old Norwegian stories, to put it that way. So it, it's been and it is quite dramatic up here that uh, Viaplay, who was such a big buyer of uh, content, unfortunately, uh, does not buy that amount at all anymore.
8: And does the Nordic Christmas Hour act as a potential blueprint then for that international co-production model?
9: I think so. And I was just in Copenhagen discussing this with the the cultural ministry of all the Nordics. And I I think that's what we experienced by not competing with the the broadcasters and uh, the money, but actually going together as the biggest studios in the Nordics going together to bring this to life. I think that sets sort of a model that we could, that we really want to explore further on. And uh, maybe that's c21 or something <laughs> at some time talk as a nordic voice and not just as a kvisten norwegian voice when we enter and come out into the international uh, market uh i think and it's i mean it's not easy i mean all the big streamers worldwide also has sort of cut a bit down, we get uh, sort of the same messages that they're not buying that much, so so we need to stick together and uh, deliver high-end content from the Nordics.
0: Frederick Kisterud, speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode and for the C21 podcast for 2023. But we'll be back in the new year with plenty more, so until then, happy holidays from all of us to all of you. Thanks for listening and wishing you all the very best for 2024.